0: Thank you for listening to the FBH Podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey, good morning, church. How we doing? All right, welcome, welcome. If you're new here, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and we're happy to have you along. Uh, that is, uh, some of you probably know, that is Seventh Street from, uh, from a long, long time ago. And so uh, we got that from a postcard, and we thought, you know what? We're going to love where we live, so uh, we are uh, excited about that. Um, but uh, for those of you who don't know me, you may not know uh, that I did not grow up here. Uh, I grew up uh, uh, about an hour and a half north of here, a little, little town called Atwater, California. Some of you have probably stopped at a Chevron on your way up to Sacramento or something like that. Um, some of you smiling because you know the Chevron I'm talking about, um, and uh, that's why we're famous. Um, but uh, Atwater actually, it's got a lot of the same vibes that that, uh, that Hanford does. Atwater. Uh, for a long time, hosted a military base. It was an Air Force base called Castle uh, Air Force Base. Um, and uh, and it was a small enough community, Outwater was, it was a small enough community where everybody knew each other, but big enough where you could meet new people, right? Kind of like Hanford, where it's like, if you got, I mean, you're probably one of these kids, right? Like you did something, you thought you hid it from your parents and your parents all of a sudden found out from a neighbor's aunt or something like that. Anybody have that happen to them? Yeah, hand raised, mostly guys, interesting. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, so I mean that that was kind of that was kind of Atwater's vibe uh, as well, um, and and beyond that, it was largely developed kind of by the blood, the sweat, and the tears of uh, of farmers and dairymen, right? Uh, it was uh, it was a relatively blue collar community, and then on top of the blue collar work that had been done, there were lots of lots of teachers, lots of uh, kind of first responders, small business people, that sort of thing. And man, I loved growing up in Atwater. Absolutely loved it. I met my best friends growing up there. They're still my best friends. Um, and, uh, and as a matter of fact, the, the, one of the most exciting things for me was uh, growing up and finally going into graduating eighth grade and going into my freshman year, and I got to go to Atwater High School. That was a big deal for me, just like the name of my city being the high school. And I was actually nervous because my sophomore year, they had planned uh, to build a brand new school whose district that I was supposed to be in. And uh, I was nervous because I spent my whole freshman year just being like, yep, Atwater High, go Falcons, blue and white, but only blue and white for my high school, not for my Major League Baseball team, um, <laughs> just for clarity's sake there. Uh, but, uh, but, and the other high school was named like Buhack Colony High School. Didn't have the same ring to it. Didn't want, like, it wasn't as kind of uh, exciting for me. And so, actually, I was supposed to go there. Long story short, they ended up just taking the class below us. Um, and so, I, I mean, I bled blue and white. I had the Letterman jacket. I did, like, the sports thing. I was doing the student leadership, associated student body thing. Um, and, man, I love my school, my school wholeheartedly. You know, you could, you could have totally, I could have listened to that old school Beach Boys song, you know, Be True to Your School, like, on the way and just, like, fist pumping, like, let's go. Um, and I, and I loved it, but, but I recognized that not everybody in my school and not everybody in my town did. You guys probably all have those people in your life, if you grew up around here, that were like, man, when I graduate, I'm out of here. I never... Want to come to? Maybe it's here. Maybe it's where you personally grew up. I don't know. anybody anybody know those people or heard that? Yeah, exactly. It almost sounds like a bad uh, a bad high school sitcom where you're the people who like Letterman jackets we love our school, and then people who are like, I'm getting out of here. I never want to return to this town uh, again. But I actually I did some research, um, and actually right now when it comes to loving where you live, we are currently in the midst of the third largest mass exodus out of the state of California. That we've ever seen. Um, Third largest, there's actually two that were larger than it. The first one was uh, at the end of the Cold War, into like the 1980s, early 1990s, uh, when America started dismantling some of their bases and decommissioning some of their bases, and they started sending soldiers home out of California. Castle Air Force Base, where I grew up, was actually one of those places, started sending them home, right? Um, Another one was right before Y2K, I don't know why, and most people don't know why people started leaving California Y2K, like it was going to fall off into the ocean or something like that because our toasters had microchips. I don't know. Um, that was the other one. But then this one, 2000, or 2020 is the larger, the third largest mass exodus out of California, and they have some reasons. Some of you probably could guess the reasons. Some of it's taxes. Um, some, of it, some of it's governance. Other people are just like, I'm done. I want to seek a different type of life, life elsewhere, whatever it may be. Um, but regardless of where you, where you fall on, on, maybe your city or your county or, or your state that you live, maybe it's even the country that you live, um, we, we tend to either enjoy it or dislike it. I don't know if we could go to love or hate because I don't know if anybody has hateful feelings, maybe they do, uh, towards, uh, towards Kings County or anything like that. But there's also those people who are just like, yeah, I'm here. I, I'm tied here. My family is here. There's no way I could ever move away because my, my mother would disown me and they wouldn't invite me home for Christmas or New Year's or anything like that. In the back of your head, you're like, that's what I was hoping for anyway. Uh, but maybe you're tied. Maybe it's your job. I don't know. Some of you just kind of exist here regardless kind of, of your feelings. And I get that. And for for this series, I'm not going to try to convince you that you need to love California. I'm not going to try to convince you that you need to love Kings County or anything that actually pertains to a physical boundary. That's not what this series is about. Actually, uh, we're going to talk through kind of the lens of what it's about, but we're going to look at at Philippians chapter 3 really quickly. Philippians chapter 3, we're starting in verse 19. It says this. It says in Paul, sorry, Paul was talking to the church in Philippi right now. um, And he says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. He's talking about just, hey, there are these people who are only concerned with the temporary. They're only concerned with their current living situation, their destiny, their God is their stomach. What is it that I can get my next fill from? Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everybody under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Let's read verse 20 again. It says, but our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus even tells us actually, John 18, 36, it's not going to be on the screen, but it says his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is not of this world. It's not here. That isn't to say that we shouldn't be concerned about this place. It's not to say we shouldn't be concerned about our city or our town or our state or our country or our world or anything like that. It's not to say that we shouldn't even pay homage to it in some way, but that as Christians, Christians beyond just our temporary residency, our temporary citizenship, we need to make sure that we can elevate our sight lines above that and recognize that we are citizens of heaven first. And that's what this is calling us to. We need to have an elevated perspective, really, of where our eternal home is, especially because we should eagerly await our Savior from there, not from here. So when we say love where you live, I'm not asking you to be an apologist for, for Kings County or anything like that. Right? I'm not asking you to, to go and proselytize about how great Hanford is or Lemoore is or wherever it is that you actually live. We're actually talking about something much more important. We're talking about our citizenship in heaven. Our elevated perspective really needs to be placed on the completely new outlook that each of us should have when it comes to the people who have been placed in our lives and when it comes to our spiritual life as well. Okay, so we're going uh, to look then at Scripture now. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. You can go ahead and flip over to 2 Corinthians Chapter 5. It will be on the screen uh, in just a second. We're going to start at verse 11. But one of the things that we need to notice, this is actually Paul's second letter that we have that he wrote to the church in Corinth. A lot of people think there were three or four letters. Uh, we have two, um, and those two make up First and Second Corinthians. So we recognize in First Corinthians, the church is completely and totally messed up. There's a lot of bad things happening in the church in Corinth. And so Paul writes, he corrects that church, kind of gives him a slap on the wrist and be like, hey, knock it off. This is what it is that you're supposed to do. Okay? Sometime in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the church and Paul have a falling out. Okay? And so this is Paul's attempt to continue to reconcile, to preach to that church. We'll get to more of that in just a second, but let's get to verse 11. It says this, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are conceived that one died for all or convinced i'm sorry convinced different convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again so as we kick this thing off we need to recognize that Paul right here is saying that he has two different motivations for ministry Okay, First off, we need to look at verse 11 again. So verse 11, when it talks about something very specific, he says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. So his first motivation for doing ministry is a healthy fear of God. Not like the fear of God, like your parents used to put in you when you got home past curfew or anything like that. Like an actual fear of the Lord. Okay, a fear of somebody who is perfect, a fear of a God who is set apart, who has created the entire universe. And we recognize that, man, if he didn't want us to exist, he would make it so, a healthy fear of the Lord. That's the first reason that Paul is doing ministry, okay? On the other hand, the second reason he's doing ministry is he knows how much Christ loves us so there is no way that in good conscience he, conscience, he could do anything other than live for the one who died on the cross for all of humanity. I don't, know, uh, I don't know where this concept came from, that we as Christians are going to begin now to apologize for what it is that we believe, or, or more necessary, for talking about what it is our belief system is. In some, some time period, some era, sometime in the last 20 years, Christians have decided that, man, it's offensive to other people to tell them about Jesus. And so there's this, this kind of excuse that goes on that it's like, hey, you know what? I, I believe in Jesus and I go to church, but you do you. Like whatever you believe is fine because we're worried about stepping on toes, we're worried about keep people's comfort. Hey, church, let's knock it off. Okay, Paul is very clear here that he does what he does for a reason, and that by extension, we need to be willing to do the same thing. We need to say, hey, look, we have a healthy fear of God. God could wipe us off the face of the earth if we wanted to. He's the one who created me. He's the one who could, who could make me cease to exist. He's the one who's going to reconcile uh, me to him forever. A little, I have a healthy fear of that, Okay. And then on the other side, when you say, "Hey," and also not just being afraid of God, I'm going to do something, but also I recognize that He sent His Son. His Son loves me so much that His Son came and died on a cross. The, the, the Scripture says, Romans says, "The wages of sin is death." And so, because of that, Christ died in my place for His or for my sins, and so that I can be with God. For He loved me enough to send His Son to die for me. And so if I'm afraid of God, if a healthy fear of God, and I recognize that he has an incredible, incredible deep love for me, that he's willing to die on a cross for my sake, the least I should be able to do is talk about him. And that's what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians. There's two main passages though, where Paul is saying, hey, look, I have to do what Jesus commanded me to do. That's what we're supposed to do. So what then is the question he has, or yeah, what has he commanded us to do? Great question. Appreciate you asking. There's two main passages. Yeah, those are the cornerstone for our mission here at FBH, to love God, love people, and serve the world. If you've been around church, these are not earth-shattering passages at all. This is a reminder to what God has called us to. The first is in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, where he tells us the greatest commandment is to love God and love our neighbors, right? Someone comes up to him and is like, hey, Jesus, tell me what the greatest commandment is. He said the greatest commandment is this, to love your God, love love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. We could paraphrase that to say love God and love people, right? And then the second one goes beyond that. It's found in Matthew 28, 16, and 20, where it tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not weird that we have to love God, we have to love people, we are serving, we are going to the world. Right? That's not on accident. This is what God has called us to do. And because God has called us to do it, and we have a healthy fear of God, and Jesus loves us enough to be able to do it, then it's our responsibility to go do it. That's what we're supposed to do. We need to recognize, though, that we like this whole idea of not sharing our faith really comes from from us trying to ease somebody's temporary discomfort. Right? We don't want to rock the boat. If we talk about Jesus, all of a sudden, man, I, I know where I stand in this relationship presently. But if I start talking something uh, about something as serious about like Jesus or politics, right? Then all of a sudden, I don't know where this relationship is going to go. Can I just say, if you're worried about talking about one of those, two of those things, make it be politics, leave politics out of your vernacular completely. If it comes down to between Jesus and politics, let's talk about Jesus. Let's have that conversation. Hey, we need to assume that somebody's temporary comfort is not more important than their eternal salvation. Hear that. We need to make sure that somebody's temporary comfort is not more important than their eternal salvation. It is not more important than their soul. And Paul here in Corinth, man, he is, like, he's not messing around. See, at the time of this writing, remember I talked to you about Paul and and the church in Corinth kind of had a falling out? Okay, at the time of this writing, the church in Corinth had rejected Paul because of his status in society. They didn't think Paul was actually important enough. Right, Paul would have been like a PR nightmare for, for like anybody trying to like for a startup. Right, he this guy was a complete and total disaster. He was he was poor and probably looked poor as well. Yeah, he worked a manual labor job. Um, he was oftentimes homeless. He was beaten regularly, so you got to imagine his face was slightly disfigured. Okay, yeah. he was not attractive, and he was a terrible public speaker. Like, there's nothing about that that you're like, I want to go follow that guy. There's nothing about that. So the church in Corinth was like, look, I don't trust your leadership because because of kind of the way that you are. I don't trust that, which is ironic because Paul is actually the one who set up the church in Corinth in the first place. One of my favorite ironies there. Like, we don't trust your leadership. I started you. Eh, sorry. You're ugly, right? So... The church in Corinth didn't think that, you know, it was good enough, that he was good enough. And so they asked Paul to prove himself as a leader. And so that's really where this comes from. He paused, Paul tells him that he shares in the ministry that he does or why he does. He reminds him that we're all followers of Christ who did something, Christ who did something more incredible on the cross than any other king would be willing to do for his subjects. He died. Any other king would not be willing to do that. But he willingly said, nope, yep, I am going to do this. So in that, Paul reminds them, I do what I do because I fear God who loves me enough to send his son for me even when I am nothing, even when I do not deserve it. This is why a lot of people, especially first century Jewish people, had a real difficult time with Jesus being the Savior, a really, really difficult time. Because what type of conquering hero comes in and gets nailed to a cross? doesn't make sense. is a disgrace. Crosses a curse. It doesn't make any sense. But this is where it gets fun. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. And this is where our direction is gonna come from. So let's keep reading, it says this. So from now on, okay, word so, right? When you hear that word so, you have to go back and look at why it's there, okay? So we just established that Paul said, hey look, we do this because we have a healthy fear of God and Jesus loves us a whole lot. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a big chunk, meaty piece of scripture right there, those verses. There's a lot to unpack, but we first just need to understand what the meaning of reconciliation is, okay? Reconciliation. You guys have probably reconciled at some point in your life, right? The dictionary defines it. It says, uh, cause to coexist in harmony to make or show to be compatible, right? For you guys, or for a lot of us, it was on the way to church, my husband was driving too quickly. And so we had to reconcile by the time we got to the parking lot, right? Something else. Like, so when we talk about the idea of reconciliation, we're talking about the idea of a mended relationship in this context, okay? And so when it consistently says, hey, we are going to be about the ministry, the message of reconciliation, being Christ ambassadors. We employ you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. We have to understand what that means. How has our relationship been reconciled to Him? And so we have a bro- we first need to recognize we have a broken relationship with God. And we need to be reconciled to God because all the way back in Genesis, Adam and Eve decided to go take a walk, take a bite of some forbidden fruit, and fracture our relationship with Him. It has been broken. And so that's what you see throughout the entire Old Testament is a broken relationship with God. A fractured relationship. A distortion of what the relationship was supposed to be. And so then all of a sudden we have all these ways that God is like, hey, try this to get back to me. You're not going to be able to, but go ahead and try it. Try this. Try this. And ultimately he says, I'm going to send my son to reconcile that relationship. To be able to make it whole again. He made our relationship harmonious. And because we are now reconciled, we now get the opportunity to be ambassadors of Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. We've been reconciled and now we are ambassadors. We no longer regard people from a worldly point of view. We get to now see people as souls. That's what this is talking about. Verse 16 is telling us that. And it is because all of a sudden, we just, we, man, we, we care more about people all of a sudden. It's not how it works. You didn't just wake up and you're like, you know what? I care more about people today. It's not how it works, especially before you've had your coffee. Okay, it's not how, that, that is not why it happens. It's because of the fact that our lives have fundamentally shifted because we are now sons and daughters of Christ. And as our lives have fundamentally shifted, now we get to put in the hard work. Okay, I remember uh, about 12 years ago now, Sarah and I, we were living in uh, Selma, Raising capital of the world. Whoop, go Selma. Um, and uh, she was super pregnant, super pregnant. Um, and, uh, and it was our first kid. And, and moms, like moms, especially, especially, you know, biological moms, I think there is a time when dads, like biological dads, you just can't relate. Right? There is a, a baby growing inside of, of a woman's womb. And, like, there is an emotional bond. There is a connect. There's obviously a physical connection there. And, like, for, for biological dads, oftentimes, you're just like, well, yep, yeah, you're, yeah, you're getting bigger. Like, and, and there's not, like, this emotional attachment usually, right? It's difficult to be able to get there. And I don't know, like, as a woman, I've never had a womb, a uterus, so I can't speak specifically to it. But I know from my point of view, um, but, but the body does absolutely incredible things. And so like God is, is knitting this baby in my wife's womb perfectly. And, and you, you learn some crazy things during pregnancy. Like, did you know, like the uterus grows 5,000 times its actual size from when it like to nine months. Like that's insane to me. Like my stomach grows like three or four times its actual size on Thanksgiving. And I have a problem. I don't get it. So 5,000, so, it is, so So I learned a ton about like God and all that stuff, but it, like emotionally, it didn't affect me until on, on March 30th at 4.30 in the morning, we had to roll out of bed so my wife could be induced to go have a baby. Uh, getting induced at 5 a.m., come on, doctor, knock it off. But we got there and, and they did all the things they needed to do to get this baby to come out and, and 11.40 p.m., all of a sudden, This baby is brought into the world, and he's naked, and he's crying, and it's 1140, and for some reason, the TV was left on, so Jay Leno was on while our son Cooper was being born. Strange. But that being said, I remember as I cut the umbilical cord, and I finally got to hold him, that something inside of me fundamentally changed forever. Forever. It fundamentally changed forever. I was now partially responsible for this little soul who could do nothing to help himself. Left to his own dev- own devices, he would, he, he would not be able to survive. It was my job, it is my job to help raise him, to love him, to keep him alive. And by doing that, needed to fundamentally deny myself more often than I ever have in my entire life. Right for the first time I had to start saying no to things because I wasn't free every Friday night. I got the opportunity to hang out with this this little little ball thing that didn't do anything but cry and poop. <laughs> but I had to fundamental like something shifted. It shifted. And now slowly but surely, twelve years later, this, this kid, for the most part, can can take care of himself. Right, we got spiritual stuff we're still working on, and just like maturity, and like like all of those like the preteen that we're really excited about. Um, but but for the most part, like if I leave him enough top ramen and honey nut Cheerios, he's gonna be fine. He's gonna be good. But something in that moment fundamentally shifted, and in the same way, when we became Christians, something in us fundamentally shifts. It is no longer simply about us. There is a weight and a responsibility in our lives that we cannot simply ignore. There are people, there are souls all around us in desperate need of the gospel of Christ. And sometimes that means sacrificing yourself for the sake of other people. Sometimes that means saying no to one person in order to better serve the other. Because if we leave the world to its own spiritual devices, in the same way that if I left my son to his own devices as an infant, and the world has no chance of survival. In the same way, if we leave ourselves to our own spiritual devices, the same will happen. We have no chance of survival. So we get to be, we have to be, we are commanded to be ambassadors of Christ, each and every one of us. Just yesterday, as a matter of fact, Jeff talked about it. We had a group of people go out and serve at King's Gospel Mission. Man, if that was you, I'm so thankful for you heading out there yesterday. Now, we're talking about their Saturday morning. You know, a lot of us weren't out there. I wasn't out there yesterday. Uh, but a lot of, a, a lot of people, that we're talking 25% of their entire waking hours of the weekend, they spent out there serving. People who actively said that the gospel and serving people is more important than my free time this morning is maybe more important than the, the chores I have to get done around my house. I want to go do somebody else's chores for them. Why? Because there's a bigger picture when we get down to it. There is simply more at play than our own comfort levels when we decide to follow Jesus. It's the whole idea of living for something bigger than yourself. Because like verse 20 says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. As God was making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors to a broken and a bedraggled world. But the concern comes in when we believe that we have to bring everyone to Jesus. Oftentimes, we make this blanket statement of, man, there are millions of souls who don't yet know Jesus. And then we get kind of overwhelmed because we're like, there's millions of people. I don't even know where to start. And so what happens is we think that we have to share everyone with Jesus. We end up not sharing Jesus with anyone. And we get overwhelmed by it. So at FBH, we implement something we call our Oikos strategy. We've talked about this before. For some of you, it may be review. For others who are new, maybe it's brand new. But for those of you new with us, Oikos, it's not just a yogurt. It's actually a Greek word that means household. And a lot of people think that because, you know, uh, because of the fact that, you know, me and Jeff and Kyle, like, we're pastors. And so, man, pastors, they have some of the greatest influence in people's spiritual lives. But actually, the oikos principle says that that isn't true. Actually, did you know that fewer than 5% of people have come to faith because of a pastor? Fewer than 5% of people have come to faith because of a pastor. It's because of somebody else in their life. I know for me, it was my mom and dad. For other people, it was maybe camps that they had been to. For other people, maybe grandma or grandpa, aunt, uncle, whatever it may be, neighbor, coworker, but the vast majority of people do not come to faith because of some professional Christian. It's crazy to me. We live in a world where people go now more so than ever, they, they can access kind of famous churches now, Right? So they have no reason, like pastors, like what? It's a pastor. It's not like, for for those of you watching online or if you've joined us online before, it's probably much easier to find a celebrity pastor's live stream than it is to find ours. And I guarantee their stream won't drop. Like, it's much easier to be able to do that. So, so when we start assuming that church is about a pastor or church is about a building or church is, is uh, you know, about the experience that we have on Sunday morning, we are selling church short. Actually, you know something kind of funny? You know that church, you know the three biggest bottlenecks to growth in a church? This is at least pre-pandemic. Three biggest bottlenecks to growth. Pastors, church buildings, and Sunday morning experiences. Those are the three biggest bottlenecks to growth in a church. Now, I ask you to think about what is your perception of church. If that's your perception of church, how good a pastor is, how nice a church building is, and what you got out of it Sunday morning, I would venture to say you have a small view of what it is that we're supposed to be doing here. And it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me. Because when we think like that, the, the, the kingdom of God suffers. Because what we're going to realize, and maybe what you already know, is that the vast majority of kingdom building does not happen in churches like this. It does not happen in buildings like this. The vast majority of it. It happens outside of these walls. Is there a small percentage? Yeah, sure. Fortify the walls? Sure. We want to learn a little bit more? Absolutely. It is paramount for you to be a part of a church body. That is incredibly important. But kingdom building, church building, church growth, that doesn't happen here. That happens in your individual lives. Sunday morning experience, if all you're in it for is the Sunday morning experience of, oh man, that pastor's great, or We do or we don't have to wear masks, or we're singing the song I want to sing or or not want to sing, or whatever it may be that you're going to get upset about this week, that we're going to get upset about this week. If that's your view of church, you're missing what church is about. Because church isn't about this, church is about connection, church is about being connected to the body of Christ. If the church was only about a Sunday morning experience or how fun church was or whatever it may be, it never would have made it out of the first century. Never. Because there's things that are way more fun than this. Your friends, your family, your co-workers, those people account for over 88% of people coming to church. Those are the people we call your oikos. So back in biblical days, there's a general, generally there's a figurehead in the household, the oikos, right? Oftentimes the, the bread-winning male. And he had, he had numerous people living in their household. We think about household, we're like, okay, I think my wife and my five kids and my two dogs, depending if they bit me or not this week, right? So like that's my kind of household. But back in the day, there were a whole bunch of people who would live under one household, Okay, there would be different servants, there would be just different people. I mean, extended family, all of that stuff. So this Greek term was one that didn't just mean someone's family. Your household, your oikos, would represent frequent and meaningful relationships. These were all of the people underneath the shield and underneath the protection and the care of one person. These are people who were in direct relationship and community with one another under the care and shield and protection of one person. Let's go back to when my life fundamentally shifted into being a dad. My son, Cooper, at that point was underneath my shield, my protection, and my care. And he will continue to be until he is outside of my household. On March 30th, 2000, just kidding. It's the same way we need to use this concept in our relationships that we have. Your oikos are people you're in direct community with on a regular basis. We would say, and this is how we would define it, everyone has 8 to 15 people that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed in your life to make an impact for the kingdom of God. Why? Because we are ambassadors of Christ to those people that God has put into your life. We are ambassadors of Christ, as Paul says. And those people are in your neighborhood, they're in your city, they're in your workplace, they're on your social media feeds. These are people who are where you live. So being a Christian, being somebody who has dedicated your life to Christ, you have the responsibility to love where you live. Each and every one of us do and if the Savior of the world tells us to love people, I think that's a good enough mandate for us to do our best to get beyond those kind of preconceived notions that we have of others. But how is it that you love people? And this is the portion where I think some of us missed the point, and I'll wrap up with this. We can't fully love people until we fully introduce them to Jesus. Let me say that again. We can't fully love people until we fully introduce them to to Jesus. So again, the idea that I'm going to have my beliefs and you can have yours, I'm going to venture to say you're not being loving. Because you have the best news possible. You have an opportunity for them to understand and have a relationship with God. You have an opportunity to share with them how they are able to get to heaven. And one of my favorite quotes, it was one of my favorite quotes for a long time, it's not so much anymore, but... uh, a lot of people like to post this. It comes up on Facebook feeds every once in a while. But it's by a, a guy by the name of St. Francis of Assisi. Anybody heard of that guy? Maybe some of you think Assisi. It's Assisi. Um, he just changed it because he got made fun. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but this was a quote. It was something like, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. It's a good quote, strong quote. Sounds so good. I disagree with it fundamentally. Here's why. When you care about something, you talk about it, you share about it, you tell people about it, right? Just the other day, a couple weeks ago, actually a couple months ago now, we had Vice President Pence and his wife come out to, to Lamore Naval, Naval Air Base, right? Naval Air Station out there. Big deal. And, and Dave Fox, he's, he's a member of our board here at the church, and he was so excited that he actually got to be part of, part of like driving different people around on the base and, and uh and I didn't know it was going to happen, so I, he, he's at church the next day, and I walk up, and I was like, hey, Dave, how's it going? He's like, hey, let me show you something. <laughs> and he takes out his phone, and he shows me a picture of him and the second lady of the United States that he had. And he goes into this big story, and they're sharing scripture and all this cool stuff, and, and I just thought to myself, as I was writing this message, I thought, I wonder if... Like instead of doing that, Dave maybe was like, you know what I'm gonna do, I'm not gonna tell anybody about this encounter that I just had. I'm gonna just simply, I'm just gonna live like I met the second lady of the United States. That's what I'm gonna do. Like everything about me is now gonna be a little bit different because I had an encounter with the second lady of the United States and he was gonna wait until I came up to him and was like, Dave, something's different about you. Did you meet the second lady of the United States of America? He's like, I'm so glad you finally asked. Let me tell you about what I know about the second lady of the United States of America. We don't function like that in any capacity unless it's our Christianity. Why? Because we're too worried about rocking the boat. We're too worried about different people's comfort levels. We are ambassadors of Christ, not ambassadors of comfort. I'm not saying go out and yell at people. I'm not saying go on the street corner. There's some people who are great at that. There's some people who are terrible at that. There's some people who are great at that. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to invest in those relationships that you are already connected to. The eight to 15 people that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed in your oikos. Why? Because you're ambassadors of Christ. You fear God and Jesus loves you a whole lot. So you should probably do it. That's our responsibility when you're excited about something, when you've had a fundamental shift in your life, like those of us who have said yes to Jesus have, you share that. You tell people about that. And that's how you love where you live. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm thankful, man, for these these people in here. I'm thankful for those joining us online as well. God, I'm thankful for your church, I'm thankful that your church is the plan A to the world, that there's no backup outside of your son coming back. So, God, I pray that we would just we would just get busy move like moving the ball down the court. That I would be willing to understand that we are indeed ambassadors of you, ambassadors of your son, that we've been reconciled to you forever. And it's our responsibility to share that reconciliation. Father, I pray we would be a church about that. And maybe there's those in here who are like, you know what? I, this whole thing about Jesus and like I, I need Jesus to be a part of my life. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. Maybe for you, like, you know what? I've been a part of church for a long time and I think I just need to commit Wherever it is you are, with head still bowed and eyes still closed, if that's you today and you want, you are willing to make a profession of faith for Christ, I, I ask that you would just pray along with me in the quietness of your heart. Let me say, Father, A, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I fall short of your holiness every single day, your perfection every single day. I'm not worthy of your love or your son's love. But God, I I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross so I could be reconciled to you forever. And I believe he loved me enough and you loved me enough to be able to send him to do that. And see, I choose to follow you every single day. That I would be an ambassador of Christ. That I would represent you well in my community, in my city in my state,
1: in my country, and in
0: the world. As I recognize that my sight lines need to be elevated to one of recognition that I am a citizen of heaven first. And our responsibility is to represent you well. So Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.